This is Higher Ed Heroes with Dr. Sebastian Kemp and Dr. Alistair Stark. Welcome to a new episode of Higher Ed Heroes. My name is Seb, and as always, I'm joined here by my wonderful colleague, Al. Hello, everyone. Our podcast is about transformative moments in the classroom. We believe that these moments when we can bring our classrooms to life can often be achieved by making small changes that are easy to adopt. And that's our focus, small changes, small things communicated in simple ways by teachers who know that these practices make a difference to their students. Our hope is that you as a listener might be able to reflect and even feel inspired to think about whether these might work for your own students. And because we know you listeners are busy and time poor people, we always want to communicate our lessons in a jargon-free way, which is why we have the teaching jargon buzzer. No! I'm always uh, excited to see which buzzer uh, no comes out. And That's my favourite. <laughs> we hit this buzzer when we hear those buzzwords that might be more at home in a teaching committee or a faculty meeting. Seb, shall we introduce this week's guest? I am very, very delighted to do that because our guest today is Dr. Roma Forbes. Roma is a senior lecturer in physiotherapy at the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences here at the University of Queensland. And one of the motivations that drive her teaching is the question of how to enhance the student's experience. In particular, how to get them better prepared for what's coming at them once they join the workforce. Roma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome, Roma. We don't often get to start with existential moments, but our first question relates to an epiphany that you had after speaking to one of your former students. Mm. What, what was the epiphany and, and how did it change your teaching practice? I've had a number of epiphanies talking to new graduates <laughs> after our physiotherapy program and graduates around Australia. I think they give really great insight to what we do as teachers. Um, I've been a clinical educator for 18 years, so that's been mostly supporting students, usually in their final year of physiotherapy, where they're putting all their knowledge and skills into practice out in the workforce with real patients. And when you've been in any teaching role for a really long period of time like that, as you both would know, <laughs> things start to become concerning. You start to see patterns and where students might be really confident in some areas and really lack confidence in others. And I was just seeing this pattern over and over again that students out in the workplace were really struggling with a skill that we call patient education. So if you're a health professional, that means being able to sit down with a patient, talk about what their diagnosis is, um, address any questions and concerns they have, their test findings, and talk about their management plan. And time and time again, I saw that students were struggling. So this led me on a very long and winding rabbit hole into research where I've been researching patient education skills of all of our health professional education students over the last 10 years. Now a few years ago I really started focusing on one particular skill that I find really interesting and really concerning for health professionals and that's the concept of diagnostic uncertainty. So that's when you've got a patient in front of you, you've asked all the right questions, you've run all the right tests, you've got all the information you can gather and it still isn't clear what their diagnosis is. And it's a huge problem in health professional education and a huge problem for health professionals. So I might just share a quick story about what I've heard from one of our graduates from the University of Queensland and some of the research that I undertook a few years ago. And it's an example that's really stuck with me. When I was interviewing him, he said, do you know the TV show House? 
So you guys know the TV yeah. show House. Absolutely. Hugh Laurie. Yes, absolutely. Yes. The basic premise of House, and if there's any House aficionados out there, they'll be screaming at me right now. But the basic premise of House is that there'll be a patient in the hospital that has some life-threatening situation. And everybody's dithering around. Nobody knows what to do. Everyone's kind of wringing their hands about what steps to take. And Hugh Laurie playing House kind of comes in all guns blazing, hangs his hat on a diagnosis. It's usually something really exotic and exciting that nobody's heard of. Everybody looks it up and it's correct. And by the end of the episode, he's not only saved the patient's life, but he's proved once again that he's the most valuable and intelligent person in the entire hospital. So this graduate said to me, you know the TV show House? When I was at university, I was led to believe that being a good clinician looks like house. It means you go and get all the information and you've got such good knowledge that for every patient in front of you, you can find the diagnosis and therefore you can manage that person effectively. And he said, what was disappointing about that is not only when I went out into placement and then went out into the workforce on my own, not only was that completely wrong, but it was really concerning that I was led to believe that. And it was one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge I faced as a health professional out in the community. That is a transferable lesson we teach to the world that we imagine or envision or the normative ideal that we want the world to look like, not the uncertain, complex sometimes terrible place that it actually is. And it really, I think it really highlights too the stereotypes that we build over time that to be the most competent and best professional, I've got to be really certain about the decisions I make and I need to be able to deliver that really effective, effectively to a patient. So it really raises concerns about not only stereotypes, but it doesn't reflect real world practice. I teach the area of pain and injury. And for many, many patients we see in the community, they don't have a clear diagnosis. So to set students up like that is unfortunately setting them up for failure. So you have the epiphany. It's obviously a good one. You want to be matching what you teach to the real world the students are going to enter into. What's the next step? You you go back to your designs and you go back to your content and you really kind of audit it. I've had a lot of discussions with, with not only new graduates about how they reflect on their physiotherapy programs. And I've interviewed graduates around Australia about what can be better in the training we deliver. But I've talked to a lot of colleagues as well um, around Australia and New Zealand about what are they doing? What do we need to do better? And done obviously a lot of reading on the on the topic, given there's a lot of literature on it. I'm really fortunate here at the University of Queensland. I coordinate four courses in our physiotherapy program. And some of them are near where the students go out onto clinical placement. So I think you guys interviewed Ellie Mandrusiak for a podcast mm. um, about a year ago where she talked about our simulation program. So I coordinate about one third of that program in the, in the area of musculoskeletal practice. So what's been important for me is to not just include diagnostic uncertainty as a module because it's inherent to what we do as health professionals. So it needs to be embedded effectively throughout a course of learning and it needs to be done in really authentic ways. It's not just a matter of saying to students, this is what you're going to face as a clinician, here's what you do about it. Because there's a lot of emotional and ethical responses we have to uncertainty that students need to really be able to recognise and acknowledge and navigate their way through. So an example of an activity that I use is in our simulation program where our students will work in small groups with patient actors. So during our simulation program Students will be in groups of three or four and they are tasked with going into the consultation room and undertaking a full consultation of a 
patient played by an actor who they've never seen before. So we design this case so that the actor gives the patient lots of information, oh sorry, gives the students lots of information, but it's unclear. So that it's designed so that the students can't find a clear diagnosis. So the students go and they ask all the questions, they do all the tests, they get all the findings, and then we get them to come back out of the room and discuss amongst themselves as a group what have you found? What's going on with the patient? What are your assessment findings? What are their problems? And I walk around the groups and just let them discuss it first. And it's really surprising how some students have a really low tolerance to uncertainty. They kind of say, no, the patient needs a clear diagnosis. I've got to be able to give them one so that I can treat them effectively today. And other students have really high tolerance to uncertainty. They say, this is fine. I don't need a clear diagnosis. I can manage this patient effectively today. So we let them discuss that as a group and we have a bit of a look at what they're thinking and then we come back together and I get them to reflect on that. How do you how are we feeling about that? It's a kind of icky feeling to feel uncertain. Let's acknowledge those feelings and let's talk about how we're going to navigate a path forward. What are you going to do when you're going back in with the patient? What are you going to say? How can you deliver education to this patient in a way that's ethical, honest, effective, without having to hang your hat on a diagnosis that you just don't have. So students go back in with the actors, they fumble their way through it, which is okay. It's a relatively safe learning environment. And they get feedback from the patient about what went well and and how that, that came across to the patient. So it's been important for us to, in summary, make them really authentic experiences to experience that feeling of uncertainty, but also draw students' attention to the feelings that come up with it the emotional responses, and then give them the tools to navigate it effectively. I remember with Ellie, you have that wonderful simulation room. You have actors. I can remember her saying, you know, there was fake vomit and stuff. It was proper. It's the real deal. But not everyone will have that. But I guess role-playing and simulation, as long as it's authentic and as long as it provokes those feelings of uncertainty, takes you to the emotions that then you can work through. Yeah, there's nothing like a real environment to spark those emotional and ethical responses. Because I could talk to students all day about what it feels like to not find a diagnosis for a patient who's got an injury or, or has pain, but it's not till they experience it firsthand that they realise this feels uncomfortable, but I can do it. And they come away from that session having much more confidence, knowing that they actually went in there and did it themselves or maybe observed their peers doing it. So it's that ability to kind of perform it and succeed on their own that really gives them confidence. Just before you come in, Seb, I'm going to self-buzzer myself and use the phrase learning outcome, but only in the sense to ask, I guess one of your learning outcomes is to make them less certain and be assured you know we're taught to teach to clear outcomes that are accessible and you know pristine and achievable and we can show this student has now gained but this is something it's completely different you you want them to feel comfortable with the lack of an outcome if you like it's about becoming comfortable in that discomfort it's about acknowledging that discomfort and knowing that you can kind of move on and still manage someone effectively even with that discomfort and there are so many problems with uncertainty it's linked to stress and anxiety in health professionals if they have a low tolerance to uncertainty and it's a big cause of burnout as well so I don't want us to be sending our graduates out 
thinking that they can't be uncertain and be exposing them to those kind of outcomes if they haven't had an opportunity to really practice that in safe spaces where they can kind of give it a go and make mistakes and learn from that. Mm. You said something earlier that I kept on my mind. We said you did not want to just deal with uncertainty, whether it's cognitive or emotional uncertainty as one particular topic in a bigger course. Rather, you want to integrate the course around these issues. And so you gave us a couple of examples. And I know from previous chats we've had that you also assess them on that. So the entire assessment regime has changed as well. To speak to another course, I have our students um, when they're around the middle part of their training, so the second year for our Bachelor of Physiotherapy students, and I've introduced a specific assessment piece that focuses really on the experience of uncertainty and getting students to submit assessment items that really show how well they're navigating those moments of uncertainty. So we use a video assignment in one of the two of our courses where students can select from six different challenging situations. And I'll give an example of a situation. Uh, one of the situations is a patient who has chronic or persistent low back pain. They've been living with it for three months. They've got really high levels of pain and disability. And you send the patient off for an MRI and the MRI comes back normal. Can you show your conversation with that patient? So that's just one of around six scenarios that students can select from. So the students have to work in groups to go, okay, how can I best navigate this uncertain, kind of awkward, challenging conversation with the patient? So they get to choose ways in which they might um, involve the patient in that discussion, how they, how they might kind of navigate what that discussion looks like, what they might say, what they might not say, and they submit those video assignments. And the 10 minutes just enough time to really show some challenging conversations. What I really love most about this video assignment though is we get to see all of them, which is really great. We get to see diverse ways of students navigating these conversations because there's no one best way of a challenging conversation with a patient. There's a million ways you could do it. So we get to see all of these videos and we choose one from each of the six cases and we get consent from those students to share with the wider cohort. So one of the final lectures that I do in the semester is I put up these videos and I talk through each of them with the student cohort, showing them some really nice examples of where the patient's been involved in the conversation, where they're showing evidence-based practice, where they're acknowledging that uncertainty with the patient. So we step the students through six of these videos in a lecture, and the feedback we've had from this is really, really fantastic. We hear from students that, you know, I went through the whole semester watching Roma or some other expert do a patient interaction, but seeing my peers do it is really powerful because if I see my peer doing something really well, it means that I can do that as well. So it's been a real confidence booster for students to not only undertake the video assignment, but actually then get to watch their peers do it. And at the end of that, they're getting to see six really nice examples of how to have a challenging conversation with a patient. And so that was getting us right to the question I had, which was the transferability of what you do to other disciplines. I guess the first step is you have to know what uncertainties they're going to face in any work-related context. Then you've got scenarios, you can use videos, peer-to-peer learning seems crucial, but it's, it seems to be getting to those emotions, doesn't it? Getting to the emotions is however yeah. you can do it. It might be helpful to think of diagnostic uncertainty, which I'm talking about, as just an example of professional uncertainty. In all of our fields, in all of our professions, we face 
so many different, unique moments of uncertainty that really are big causes of stress and anxiety, um, and we're pretty intolerant too. And one thing I've reflected on before talking about this today is in our social lives, we're really good at living with uncertainty, right? We've got just little things like the traffic and the weather. I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home, so every minute, yeah, every minute yeah. for me is yeah. uncertainty. And you know, we're kind of okay with that, but when it comes to our professional lives, we don't like to be uncertain. We still have those stereotypes that the like house where the best most valuable and competent person in the room is the one who's super decisive and super certain Mm. so really exposing students to moments of uncertainty is so important for them to build that muscle so to speak physiotherapy speak there (laughs) about acknowledging uncertainty and becoming more comfortable with it so it might be that as teachers we if you've got existing activities like case studies or problem solving or projects bringing in some kind of pinch points into those activities where the students might have conflicting information. They might come to a fork in the road where they have to make a decision. And just pausing and getting them to stop and talk about how uncomfortable that feels. Get them to navigate how they're gonna ethically move forward. What other information might they need to make a decision and then move forward? And just, just sitting with those feelings and acknowledging them. It doesn't have to be about uncertainty. Mm. It could be something completely different. For me, the, the, the important lesson learned listening to you is that you opened your ears towards former students of yours who are now out in the field and they raised your awareness of, in your case, uncertainty, but it could be something very, very different. I think the lesson for me is a broader one even to say like, maybe we need to tune into our former students and look at what is it that they need and wish they had gotten from the education we provide for them. Mm. Yeah, hearing from our graduates and other graduates around Australia and New Zealand has been one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful influence on what I do as a teacher. I think um, I think as teachers we get sometimes a little bit siloed into just looking at our students and going, what are my students' outcomes? What are their feedback? What's my student evaluation scores? What are the comments? And that's really important, don't get me wrong, but sometimes it does give us a bit of a narrow and very time-sensitive view of things because we're just looking at one semester or at best we might look at how our students go into the following year. But really listening and hearing from our graduates is so critical. They're going out into such diverse workplaces. Like I interview graduates who in a single week would work in a private practice, in a hospital, in an aged care setting, all in the same week. And so these experiences are so diverse and therefore so helpful to draw on. What can we be doing better in our programs? What can we adjust? How can we really make sure we're meeting the needs of graduates as, as the workforce changes? You know, there's so many opportunities, I think. If you think about a guest lecturer, you invite into your course to talk about practice. Why not encourage them to speak about failure and anxiety and all the things that they struggle with? Why not have those kind of more authentic, honest conversations at every moment? That's that There's opportunities in, in all scales, I think, to do this. It's been tremendously wonderful and a great pleasure to have you here on the podcast, Roma bit of like pop culture reference with House, a great story that started out, started off with an epiphany Mm. that led to a transformation of what you do in the classroom and you told it extremely well. Mm. So thank you so much for being here. If you as a listener liked what you heard and you'd like to reach out and further engage with obviously Roma, Elle or myself, 
you can always please do that and of course keep following us on our various social media channels thanks everyone for joining us on higher ed heroes and as always we look forward to your company again Mm -hmm.